feeling that we really are on the cusp of another phase of the Nakbe, of the catastrophe, I think has really pushed a lot of Palestinians to the edge that any attempts to even try to use alternative tactics, to try to think of more, more positive you know, sort of political avenues vis-a-vis -vis Israelis or the Israeli state, or even the international community, or the, especially the Western world, they feel that all that was in vain. And they feel that more than any other time, they're, they're really on their own. Over the course of just four weeks, over 10,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israel's assault on Gaza, with thousands more injured and displaced, a staggering level of casualties in such a short period of time. More than 4,000 of those killed are children, and for weeks aid agencies, human rights organisations and the UN Secretary General have been demanding a ceasefire, a position blocked by the United States and other Western governments. Meanwhile, more than 150 Palestinians have been killed in the occupied West Bank, where Israel's project of ethnically cleansing the territory continues. In today's episode, I spoke with Amjad Iraqi, a Palestinian writer and editor at Plus972 magazine, whose title is taken from the international dialing code for both Israel and the occupied territories. We talked about Israel's professed goal to wipe out Hamas in the Gaza Strip and what Israel intends to do with the territory and its population after the end of Operation Iron Sword. We also discussed how seriously to take the statements of Western governments who profess to support a viable Palestinian state alongside Israel. And we spoke about how liberal Zionism is a phenomenon that exists more in the minds of Western policymakers and liberal journalists than it does in Israel itself, where internal political divisions are between various right-wing Zionist factions, all united in their determination to maintain what Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch describe as Israel's system of apartheid. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles perfect for PTO listeners. One you might like to check out is The Eye of the Master, A Social History of Artificial Intelligence by Matteo Pasquinelli. What is AI? A dominant view describes it as the quest to solve intelligence, a solution supposedly to be found in the secret logic of the mind, such as in complex neural networks. The Eye of the Master, a new book by Matteo Pasquinelli, published by Verso Books, argues to the contrary that the inner code of AI is shaped not by the imitation of biological intelligence, but the intelligence of labour and social relations. Described as a political weapon to rethink the politics of AI, the Eye of the Master urges a new literacy on scientists, journalists and new generations of activists who should recognise that the mystery of AI is just the automation of labour at the highest degree. The Eye of the Master, A Social History of Artificial Intelligence by Matteo Pasquinelli, is out now from Verso Books. And now to today's interview. Amjad Iraqi is an editor and writer at Plus972 magazine. He was previously an advocacy coordinator at Hadala, the legal centre for Arab minority rights in Israel. And his writing has appeared in Al Shabaka, the London Review of Books, The Nation, and Jewish Currents, amongst other venues. So Amjad, in your article for the London Review of Books, you referred to Israeli Defence Minister Yoav Gallant's recent remarks at a committee of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, at which he outlined three phases of Israel's military operation in the Gaza Strip. The first being the comprehensive defeat of Hamas, the second a mopping up exercise to wipe out pockets of armed Palestinian resistance, and a third phase that would involve what Gallant described as 
the creation of a new security regime in the Gaza Strip, the removal of Israel's responsibility for life in the Strip, and the creation of a new security reality for the citizens of Israel. Before we talk about that third phase and whether Israel can institute some kind of collaborationist regime that would police and manage the life of Gazans, do you believe Israel actually can and and will comprehensively defeat Hamas in the Gaza Strip with all the appalling civilian death and injury that that will entail? So we're still in the eye of the storm and the Israeli military and political establishments, you know, I mean, despite Gallant's declarations, are still quite conflicted and are saying rather different things in different wordings about what they exactly plan to achieve, you know, beyond this idea of destroying Hamas. That's certainly the goal that they've set forward for the Israeli public and it's a narrative they're promoting abroad. But this kind of reflects a lot of uh, misconceptions about the movement And yes, the Israeli military can certainly destroy huge amounts of Hamas's capacity in terms of its military apparatus and also its political uh, rootings in in Gaza as a government. I mean, the huge part of that is by decimating Gaza itself and making it completely ungovernable, completely unlivable, which first and foremost comes to the cost of, you know, the 2.3 million Palestinians who are there. But it is a bit of a myth that they're trying to promote and that, yes, they may be able to really destroy kind of huge infrastructures of Hamas in the Strip. But Hamas itself is still a rather transnational movement. It is a transnational organization, let's say, for a national purpose. Uh, Its leadership is still based abroad. It has a presence in the occupied West Bank. It has an ideology which links up with other kind of regional ideas of political Islam and, uh, and military resistance and acts of resistance including connecting with Hezbollah and other and other states in the region. And so the idea that somehow decimating entire parts of Gaza will destroy that political movement uh, is, it's, it, it can't be achieved in the real sense. And we've had sort of kind of key examples of this, that uh, a lot of what Galant was speaking about and a lot of what is modeled around this idea of decimating and destroying the organization is modeled around what Israel tried to do with the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, back in 1982 when Israel uh, invaded Lebanon and laid siege to Beirut uh, with that express purpose. And while it certainly weakened the PLO and had a lot of consequences, it could not really destroy it. And in the end, you know, this is not about necessarily actually destroying Hamas itself. And there are a lot of questions about what might emerge afterwards, but... In reality, what the Israeli establishment wants and what much of Jewish-Israeli society wants is the total weakening, if not the total erasure, putting it very bluntly, of the Gaza Strip itself, regardless of who is in power. That For Israel, the Gaza Strip has always been a core thorn in its security doctrine. It's been a major focal point of resistance, a major point of Palestinian identity. And so... Hamas or no Hamas, in in the eyes of many Israelis, something needs to be done about the Gaza Strip. And that inevitably means destroying the Palestinian people there before they're even destroying Hamas. Some Israeli commentators have suggested that although defeating Hamas remains the long-term objective, it's, it's not impossible that Israel in the short term would settle for something less. Perhaps, for instance, very significant degradation of of Hamas's offensive capabilities, Israel permanently taking control of a depopulated northern Gaza and creating an expanded security architecture on the so-called border, which would then hem Gazans into a much smaller territory in the south of the Strip. Do you think that's potentially a likely outcome, particularly if Israel is at some point forced to respond to the 
increasing international outrage about what it's doing in the territory. It certainly seems so. I mean, again, it's still hard to predict, but one thing that a lot of uh, officials seem to be have been making clear is the idea of uh, making Gaza, quote unquote, smaller. What that looks like is a bit hard to tell, but you know we can already take some hints from the facts on the ground. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Israeli army ordered about 1 million Palestinians living in the northern part of the Gaza Strip to evacuate southwards. So huge parts of the Strip are now concentrated into a, you know, an already concentrated part of the Strip, uh, as it were. And we're already seeing some military activities which seem to be almost carving out large parts of the north. And they are launching more ground incursions. I think they're now trying to surround Gaza City, you know, like basically, you know, kind of like it's called the de facto capital of the Strip in a way. And I think the heart of uh, governmental and Hamas infrastructure. But it's it's not unlikely, let's say, that in some form or another, that the Israeli authorities will try to redefine the Gaza fence. And I describe it as a fence specifically and not a border, because in the end, this is still... Um, well, it's a, let's put it like that. It's a little bit of a frontier for the Israeli state, and the border is in reality out in the Mediterranean. So the idea of removing that fence, of enclosing it even further and further onto the population, and creating what for the Israeli military will likely be, or what they might envision as a sort of quote-unquote buffer zone of just kind of like vast expanses of a no-man's land in some form or another, stationing Israeli forces even you know deeper into the Strip in some form, flattening entire neighborhoods and towns and communities, of course, and then you also have far-right politicians who might actually then t- later take advantage of this in the interest of re-establishing Israeli settlements in the Gaza Strip. You know, they were withdrawn in 2005, you know, misleadingly called a disengagement. But for a lot of politicians, they've been speaking quite a lot, uh, I mean, for years now, about the idea of, that we need to retake Gaza. So there's a sort of alignment of the idea that there needs to be that recarving out of the Strip. So I think given all the geopolitical um, kind of equations of all this, that Hezbollah is still in the picture, that there's also a lot of dissent both within the Israeli establishment and the Israeli public, especially in regards to Israeli hostages who were taken by Hamas on October 7th. These friction points, you know, will likely kind of create some forms of obstacles to achieving maximus goals, but only time will tell exactly how far they can take it. Just on that point about the settlements that, existed in Gaza before the so-called disengagement plan. Could, could you say something about that? Because I think, you know, that period of time when there were settlements in, in, in Gaza has sort of been forgotten. And although the number of settlers was very small, the extent of territory that Israel took control of in, in Gaza, notionally on behalf of the settlers, was, was extraordinary. Yeah, and here I think it's important to also kind of set the premises of the understanding of what the Gaza Strip is. You know, it's always, you know, since 1967, it has been occupied territory occupied by Israel, as opposed to Egypt, from which it was uh, conquered in that in that 67 war. And there's always been this idea that Gaza is somehow outside of the Israeli state. But in de facto reality, the moment that Israeli soldiers and Israeli naval ships, you know, that they step foot on the Gaza coast and put their ships along that Mediterranean, Gaza became absorbed by the Israeli state. Like whether or not there were settlements, and even to this day, even after 2005, the Israeli border lies out in the sea. And it has complete and total control of everything around Gaza. And I think that's a very important point because, and this is what I meant by this misleading idea of disengagement, that, uh, I mean, uh, up until 2005, you had basically the same kind of settlement project exactly as in the, as in the West Bank. And, you know, one of the core reasons why Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, uh, you know, in uh, in the early 2000s, in the midst of the Second Intifada, the reason why he made this move 
It was not because of some kind of interest of peace or whatnot. It just became very untenable for the Israeli state to be investing that much in what they regarded as this tiny strip of land with all this money and, and, uh, and military resources in the face of Palestinian resistance especially. And that for people like Sharon, the priority was a settlement project in the occupied West Bank. And so 2005 and the, and the withdrawal was about kind of sort of redesigning the architecture around it. It was controlled by other means. And that control did not start in 2005, and it didn't just start with the blockade of 2007 when Hamas took over the Strip after kind of basically being forcefully ousted from a democratically elected government. So you've had these kind of different fluctuations of control under the Israeli state, but that control has always remained. And, you know, these far-right ideologues, you know, whether or not they will actually really push forward that settlement project in that Strip is, you know, it is up to kind of factors even beyond their control. But I guess it's just important to say, like, like no, no matter what, whether they put Israelis on the ground or not, like it still remains under that uh, under that regime. It is part of the one state reality. It is part of the wider architecture of apartheid that exists between the river and the sea. And the worst case scenario, you know, especially for Palestinians, is that maybe the Israelis think that they can go all the way and actually clear Gaza entirely of either as much Palestinians as possible, if not all the Palestinians. And we're already seeing some beginnings of actually thinking about that on a policy level discussion and not just a sort of ideological rhetoric. If, as you say, it's highly unlikely that Israel could, you know, really fundamentally destroy Hamas, even if it can do some serious damage to its military capabilities in Gaza. Do you then regard all the talk about sort of post-conflict scenario where there would be some sort of multinational force? I mean, initially it was floated that that might include American troops, which, you know, pretty insane idea and was, was quickly scotched by the US. There was also talk of soldiers from the Arab League states being deployed, but it's hard to see that there's any appetite for that in Cairo or, or Riyadh or anywhere else. The Palestinian Authority has, of course, acted as the gendarmes of the Israelis in the West Bank. But given that they are now being challenged by independent Palestinian militant groups there, and given their extreme unpopularity at this stage, coming to power in Gaza as a result of Israel's genocidal attack on the population is hardly an appetizing one for them. Do you regard all that talk really as, as fantasy at this point? In many respects, yes, but anything is possible. I mean, in, in many ways, because things are in such flux... And I think one of the most shocking aspects of all this is um, the depths to which the Israeli authorities have kind of are taking this as a historic opportunity to, I mean, as Galant said in his, in his speeches, to really just redesign the regime around Gaza. And there's really a lot of debates and conflicts about it. I mean, the idea of the Palestinian Authority stepping in, I mean, just an example, like a lot of Israeli authorities, they understand that the PA, for example, has no legitimacy even in the West Bank, that it is an effective subcontractor and it's actually keeping up its end of the bargain in a way uh, as set out by the Oslo Accords, but that they're not, they're worried that it just won't be sustainable. And just even point this out, like a few uh, days ago, um, the magazine I work at, 972 Magazine, with our partner site, Local Call uh, in Hebrew, we uncovered this document, this report produced by the Israeli Intelligence Ministry which is a small kind of ministerial portfolio and doesn't have a lot of executive authority. It doesn't actually control the Mossad or the Shin Bet. But in that document, they actually analyze a couple of options for what the Israelis can do or should do about the Gaza Strip. The almost unequivocal recommendation was actually the full expulsion of the Palestinians. They said these other options, uh, two other recommendations they had was like either getting the PA to step in 
can't exactly take over, or like to get some other kind of quote unquote like local government or local enforcer that was separate from the PA. So essentially trying to keep the same divide and conquer strategy in in the way that they had hoped with Hamas. And even that document kind of analyzed correctly that we can't rely on the PA to do so, as was experienced in 2006, 2007, when Hamas kind of took over the strip during that governmental takeover. And they're not sure their local enforcer will be able to actually guarantee that regime. And that's something after Hamas might be even worse. Even though it's, again, it's just like it's one document as part of this policy discussion, but the impunity that these Israelis are feeling that, like, this is now the moment to try to do something, uh, I mean, not different because forced expulsion has been the story of Palestinians since day one, but that, that this might be an opportune time for them to really just go for the most ambitious objectives. And with their, and with Arab states, you know, for all their talk and posturing, they're still sitting this one out for the most part, and they're still unsure of how to engage with all this. So this is the alarming part uh, that even though it's all in flux, it's clear that the Israelis are getting the sense that they might be able to get away with this, especially with American backing, and especially with this idea that uh, by totally kind of, you know, essentially getting everyone in the, in the international community on board with the idea that, that something more permanent needs to be dealt with in Gaza, that the temporary solution is no longer doable. I mean, it was very interesting to see some of the reaction to that policy document described because I saw supporters of Israel, you know, making the argument that, you know, this particular government department isn't so important. As you say, it doesn't control Mossad or the, the Shin Bet. But nonetheless, you know, what does it say about the moral character of, of your society if this is considered, you know, something that you can, you know, float as a position paper in your government, a call for mass ethnic cleansing? It's really bringing up, really to the policy forefront, something which is always kind of in in the minds and even just like in the public rhetoric of Israelis for a very long time. You know, Gaza, you know, like I was saying, has always posed this fundamental challenge to the Israeli state, to the Israeli society, not just in terms of the armed resistance, and this is well before Hamas even came into existence, but because also just the fact that, uh, you know, two thirds of the Gazan population, of the population in Gaza are actually not from Gaza, that either they or their descendants come from lands that, uh, you know, they're originally like inside what's uh, what's modern day Israel. You know, a lot of the southern communities that were attacked uh, on October 7th, where the massacres took place, were actually also constructed, almost designed uh, to be constructed around and on the lands of, of Palestinians. So Gaza has, you know, since the late 50s onwards, has always been one of the most, one of the biggest Achilles heels of the Israeli state. And this is one of the aspects that, um, that makes it such a game changer that I think this was what happened on October 7th, you know, was were these two elements of Hamas militarily breaking out of the Gaza fence, really breaking the idea that the status quo, the quote unquote status quo was sustainable and that somehow everything was just going to be static. Uh, and the other element is, of course, like the mass atrocities that happened in the southern communities, which has riled up Israeli Jewish society so much, understandably so, but that the automatic and almost overwhelming response is revenge. And it's almost, even if it's not explicitly said, but it's to tell almost the authorities, fix the problem, do whatever you need to against the Palestinians. And you're seeing this and you're feeling this in every crevice of Israeli society. And this is why like, we're really not sort of over, overstating the fact that the idea of genocidal intent and the genocidal remarks that we're hearing from Israeli politicians, from generals, from the Israeli media, from Jewish Israelis on the streets, uh, I mean, Palestinian citizens of Israel inside the state are hearing these things, you know, in their workplaces, you know, in, at the grocery stores, everywhere you go, like, it's just this overwhelming complicity and desire to see Gaza completely go, you know, if not the Palestinians as a whole. 
And so, yeah, the, for, for the government, this is, this is their shot. This is their chance to do so. Again, there are a lot of obstacles to it, but I think there's a lot of emboldening, especially by Washington and the way that not a lot of foreign governments are calling for a ceasefire, which is rather shocking in, in and of itself, but just means for the Israelis, like, okay, let's push this as far as we can go. And they're really absorbing that. Uh, they have a lot of power to, to see that through. Just on the Americans and the Europeans for a moment. So the US and European countries have been restating their professed commitment to the two-state solution. Rather than a call for a viable, independent Palestinian state, and of course that's contested by people who would want to advocate for the so-called one-state solution, do you think that that call for a two-state solution should really be understood as advocacy of, of what the Oslo peace process actually terminated in? the Palestinians being allowed to control non-contiguous segments of the West Bank while the Israeli settlements continue to expand and with Israel maintaining control of the Jordan Valley rather than a full Israeli withdrawal from the entirety of the West Bank and Gaza. This is the thing. I mean, the two-state solution as envisioned, and not just envisioned, but also the specifics, uh, exactly as you said, the way that it was always carved out and the way that it was, it was always conceived of is that it was never about two equal states. It was one powerful state and one sort of mini consolation state. And yes, you had the PLO, for example, acquiesce to this idea. You had them sign on to the Oslo Accords. And especially in the 90s, Palestinians, you know, thought that maybe this was, uh, I mean, not all, but some, quite a few Palestinians thought that maybe this is the way to go. And maybe from here, we can begin to achieve a different kind of reality down the line and down the future. But yeah, it became very clear, I mean, almost immediately to a lot of Palestinians how much the, the two-state solution was in fact a cage. It was a cage for Palestinians in the occupied territories themselves. Exactly as you said, the West Bank was just being whittled down and it really was a legitimation of Israel's takeovers through its settlements, through its security control, by not allowing a Palestinian military to have the Israeli military still have all these security provisions that allowed it to basically still rule over Palestinian lives. And all these caveats to Palestinian self-determination, quote-unquote, that could only have made it a client state to the Israeli authorities and constantly at the mercy of the Israeli state. And this is not even getting to the question of like intents of the Oslo Accords, you know, the, the, there's lots to say about that. But it's just baffling to me that it's now been two months to the 30 years since Oslo was signed. And to hear American policymakers, European policymakers in every meeting and every press statement still going on about the two-state solution, just makes them look like fools. I mean, I'm sorry to be very blunt, but it's just like, and they know better. And they know that it's a myth and they know that it's long gone and they know that there's no viability for it and that Palestinians especially have caught on to, to the facade of it. And this is not even to mention, for example, Palestinian refugees who make up the huge chunk of the Palestinian population who say, well, what about our right to return in the same way that other refugees around this world have, have their rights? Or for Palestinian citizens, whereby you're saying, so you're talking about a Jewish state alongside a Palestinian state. Where do we fit into this? And if we are allowed inside the Jewish state, do we still have to accept our second-class status in the interest of this uh, of Jewish privilege? So these are questions that have just gone completely unanswered by the international community, or, or if, if not unanswered, then sort of a bit of playing dumb, which has caused real direct harm, and that in the end has been wholly complicit, consciously and subconsciously, for Israel to maintain that one-state reality. And I say one-state reality not as one that just existed just in the past decade with the right-wing governments. It existed the moment 1967 happened, the moment that the war took place and Israel conquered all the territory. That was when the one-state reality happened. 
for 50 plus years. And so if these foreign policymakers were still keeping all their levers of power behind the Israeli state, channeling it to them and weakening and punishing the Palestinians every time they're trying to challenge those parameters, or even trying to imagine something different and actually say that we want to seek something better and something that is more aligned with values of freedom or of equality, of real justice, and that we don't want to play by this game anymore, and they're punished for deviating from it, then yeah, I think international policy making circles really need to self-reflect. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's just really shocking, the complete disconnect of that rhetoric with the realities on the ground. There's been a lot written about the prospects of the attack on Gaza provoking a wider war in the region, drawing in Iran and Hezbollah in particular. But many analysts have pointed to the apparent fact that whether it's the Israelis, the Americans, or the Iranians and Hezbollah, none of the major actors in the region particularly seem to want to escalate, with the possible exception of Israel, who might well like to do so at some point, but perhaps not while their operation in Gaza is ongoing. But if Israel is determined to conduct this grinding counterinsurgency operation in Gaza for months to come with all the death and destruction that that entails, how do Iran and Hezbollah not respond? Isn't it likely that regionalization could happen not by design, but because Iran and Hezbollah just feel compelled to act? Yeah, everything's very much kind of like on the razor's edge. I, I was able to catch um, just a little bit of uh, Hassan Nasrallah's speech, Hassan Nasrallah, the, um, the head of Hezbollah. And there was like a lot of fear and anticipation of what he was going to say. Uh, at least from before I logged on here, uh, we uh, he didn't say necessarily that Hezbollah was going to get directly involved, or at least beyond the kind of skirmishes that have been happening up in the north, which are sort of escalating sort of day by day in different ways. But it's quite evident that they don't want to make it out into full-on invasion yet. I mean, and Nasrallah in his own speech was emphasizing two things. One is that like this was a Hamas operation that they did not coordinate or consult with either Hezbollah or Iran or any other proxies like that the idea was that this was organized by the movement and and that Nasrallah you know kind of like accepted that and so making it as a Palestinian issue first and foremost but still placing themselves as in partnership and that they're ready for deterrence and he was also making a lot of parallels in his speech to the 2006 Lebanon war between like Israel and Hezbollah which of course came to the cost of Lebanese civilians for the most part but trying to draw those kind of parallels is to be like, you know, what happened on what Hamas labels as Al-Aqsa flood uh, or Al-Aqsa storm uh, on October 7th is something around that, that Nasrallah is trying to create the narrative and try to rally for Arabs and Middle Easterners the idea that this was a moment that shatters the myth of invincibility of the Israeli state. There was more than just sort of like an intelligence or military failure, but that the occupier, as it were, is vulnerable. And so Hezbollah is at the ready, and from the skirmishes and the way that they're engaging with Israeli forces up in the north, you know, because of its because it's limited, it's clear that they don't want to go fully in. And the fact that they're emphasizing this is a Hamas uh, fight first and foremost is an indication that they're trying to limit that. But like you said, I mean, in wartime, anything and everything can happen. All it takes is accidents here, accidents there. Exactly, the Israeli authorities deciding that they're going to go all in. And there's a lot of bombastic talking here and there, but everyone knows that they stand to lose quite a bit in the regional war. And you know, is stepping in to kind of create those deterrences. And Hezbollah itself is also trying to present itself as a deterrent. So it's all, but it's all really on these very shaky grounds. And of course, in the meantime, at least, you know, even this quote-unquote status quo is still coming to the direct cost of Palestinians in Gaza, whereby 
even the masses have been killed. We've crossed the 8,000 mark, approaching 9,000, if I'm not mistaken. And the masses of destruction, like despite all this talk of red lines, you know, we're seeing a lot of red lines also being broken. And the fact that, again, the Americans are not calling for a ceasefire to even just calm the tensions is is an indication that they think that they can push the envelope a little bit for the Israelis to recarve Gaza in whatever way they see fit. So, yeah, it's it's just extremely, extremely tense. It's very uncertain. It's like no one wants the war, and yet everyone, or or, or no one wants a regional war specifically, but all it takes is just a few moments here and there to spill everything over. And we, we've seen this happen in history before. And at the moment, there's no sign that there's going to be any real de-escalation of it. So if we turn to a moment to the situation in Israel, one might have imagined that the standard sort of rally round the flag effect that occurs when any state declares war would have meant that Netanyahu would be temporarily at least shielded from internal criticism. But if that was the dynamic, it, it certainly didn't last very long. And there's been plenty of outspoken criticism of Netanyahu for the failure to predict or effectively respond to Hamas's operation on October 7th. And on Thursday, the 2nd of November, people within the Biden administration were anonymously briefing against Netanyahu and, and suggesting that he wasn't likely to be long in power. And, and, and we know that despite the sort of fulsome sort of support for Israel that, that Biden has been projecting, there was no love loss between the two politicians. How precarious do you think Netanyahu's position is at the moment? Um, very, is, is the answer. Yeah, I mean, the, the rally around the flag effect is mostly around that the Gaza needs to be punished in some way and to take out revenge through the might of the Israeli military. But you're right, uh, you know, even polls being conducted are showing just everyone thinks Netanyahu needs to go. And I mean, just to also put this into at least some more media context, you know, even though it seems a lifetime ago, you know, since the beginning of the year, you know, Israel has practically been in this massive kind of, you know, quote unquote, civil conflict around uh, the far right government and its plans to basically overhaul the Israeli judiciary, you know, attached to many other kinds of policies and other members of the far right government. But Netanyahu has been at the very center of that, and that as the months went by with these mass demonstrations uh, against the government and against the judicial coup, that even those in the right-wing camp, I mean, not all, but some segments were even kind of um, deviating from the right-wing line and actually criticizing Netanyahu, being like, this is, this can no longer, this can no longer function, you know, we're weakening the state. There was a massive wave of military reservists who were also basically refusing to sign up for their draft and for you know, for their duties. Of course, it, I mean, the rally around the flag happened with the moment October 7th occurred, you know, so there's there's like limits to those lines. But it's just that for months now, the Israeli public has grown more and more tired of Netanyahu. Everything from his corruption charges to the way he's been handling the judicial coup, to just feeling that the Israeli state is really now suffering. And now October 7th was really, for many Israelis, just a breaking point that anything that Netanyahu did over the 12, 13 years has been in, he's been in power since 2009, that this is the ultimate proof that he could no longer stay intact. And Netanyahu knows this. And this is why he has a very personal interest. And this is the core interest of Bibi, for the, that to essentially prolong the war in order to save himself, barring some kind of massive internal political coup of some kind. I mean, that's a dramatic term, but, you know, some kind of pressures from within uh, the government, from the military, etc. Bibi has an interest in seeing this go on for as long as possible. He needs to be a wartime commander and he wants to, if not restore his reputation, at least prolong his political survival. And this has always been the number one motivation for Netanyahu in everything he ever does. For all his political ideologies, etc., it's, you know, he is number one. 
So this is a very dangerous reality whereby still so much power is held by this man. And even though the Israeli public is really turning against him, has been turning against him for a while, that the war provides, a, like I said, kind of like, a, it brings a lot of different interests into a, into alignment. And time will tell you, I mean, whether whether this you know, military operation finishes, whether it might take weeks, it might take months, no one really knows how, how far this will go. But I think if there is a day after, as it were, I doubt Netanyahu will be able to stick around for very long. The question is what will come after. And frankly, those to his right and even those to his, you know, quote unquote left, don't deviate a lot from his approach and his policies, particularly when it comes to the Palestinians. And this is something that's also very concerning. When it comes to the Israeli left, or we might say the so-called left, since it's really only a tiny minority that are critical of Zionism, where do you see the left at this point? Do you see it as still in a process of terminal decline and marginalization? Or do you think that the attack on Gaza might serve to galvanize at least the more principled parts of the Israeli left? So the Israeli Zionist left, as people know it, doesn't really exist as a political force inside Israel itself. I mean, the only place where that kind of Zionist leftism or liberal Zionism really exists is mostly in like segments of the Jewish diaspora. The premises of the ideology is very much in international policymaking in Western governments. But in Israel itself, it's just it's really not a force to be reckoned with. Many people, I'm sure, have been hearing about how much the Israeli political spectrum has really lurched to the right, and it's really not an overstatement. Like, you have to understand that Israeli politics today, from the from the top down, is very much a battle within the Israeli right. Like the, like the kind of axis in which Israeli politics determines, you know, policy and the public discourse, especially when it comes to Palestinians, what used to be right-wing in 20 years ago is now the left or the center in Israeli society today. You know, this isn't just represented by the kind of the far-right government, the most extreme far-right government that you've seen in Israel's history, but the fact that the Israeli opposition forces, uh, people like uh, Yair Lapid or Benny Gantz, especially when it comes to Palestinians, actually share a lot of the Likud Party's ideology and its policies and an acceptance, almost embracing of the quote-unquote status quo, basically seeing the system of apartheid as desired and as the solution to manage the quote-unquote Palestinian problem. And that includes Gaza, of course. And this is why even like in that brief phase in the Netanyahu government, we we had the Bennett-Lapid government, this cobbling together of various different parties just to oust Netanyahu, still continued many of the same practices and same policies and echoed a lot of the same rhetoric and even launched like a war or two and even other military operations uh, on Gaza and in the West Bank, even outlawed Palestinian human rights organizations. Like that was done under the non-Netanyahu government. And so this is where the debates are really happening. It's kind of strange sometimes to see, again, like Western policymakers and even like Large parts of the American Jewish establishment still talking about some kind of Zionism that can still pose a challenge to the Zionist right, but it's just really not the case. This isn't to say that there aren't deep differences within Israeli politics, especially in the past few months where we've talked about or where Israelis have really fought over questions of the secular versus religious spectrums and how far do they want to go with the Palestinians. Like the far right really wants to really kind of maximize its, uh, or let's say like the harder, greater Israel versus the softer, greater Israel of the opposition. And this is the alarming thing. And the only real opposition kind of that we can regard as a kind of leftist or progressive opposition is actually presented by Palestinian citizens of Israel. 
who, even though they have different ideologies and political parties, the core consensus of the Palestinian community inside the state is full equality for everybody and the total end to the occupation, no questions asked. So it's ironic that the most democratic camp, or what we would regard as democratic in the rest of the world, inside the quote-unquote Jewish state, is actually led by non-Jews, along with the support of what we regard as like the Israeli radical left. I think this really needs to be grasped in the international community. Like the idea that there's some sort of saving grace right now in, uh, in the Israeli spectrum is just not the case. It is more apartheid. It's just more, it's just about how violent do they want to make it and how explicit do they want to make it. Just on that point about, as you described, the way in which outside of Israel, there is this tendency to still believe that liberal Zionism is a force. What do you think accounts for that? Is it a sort of historical hangover? Is it because a lot of, you know, politicians and policymakers remember a time when in Israel the political scene was dominated by the Labour Party, which, of course, you know, important to emphasise that the, the Labour Party is, you know, very much implicated in the project of apartheid and dispossessing the Palestinians. But nonetheless, it could at least, you know, appear to be a sort of gentler version of Zionism, so to speak. Is it that sort of historical memory? Or do you think it's more sort of straightforward cynicism that it's easier to continue to defend Israel if one is able to portray it as a less radical and right-wing society than it actually is. I mean, at the heart of this is kind of the extent to which the myth of Israel has really just been absorbed in Western discourse. You know, the idea that Israel was always a democracy and that it wasn't like a, a settler colonial movement, even though the Zionist founders and the early Zionist movement defined themselves almost explicitly as a settler colonial movement. Like there's this weird amnesia and this very conscious blindsiding of what Israel actually is. And it's just kind of become so normalized in a lot of Western discourse and from the political level to academic debates. And so they just bought into these myths so much that reality and the realities that we've been seeing, not just for the past 50 years, but the past 70 plus years, that reality is not really breaking those myths that still exist. And yeah, there's a bit, there's a hint of this kind of nostalgia of the idea of Israel, which, you know, ironically, in the past decade, the far right has really done a lot of Palestinians work telling the world exactly who they are and what they want to be. That they basically are echoing things that even Israel's founders, including David Ben-Gurion, actually said quite explicitly. But for some reason, Western policymakers and what have you, they keep doing this kind of apologetic narrative of being like, no, they don't really mean that. Or no, the Israeli founders never really said that. No, the Israeli far-right government or Netanyahu, you know, like they mean something else. It's like this constant, strange retranslation. And the far-right especially is like almost furious about this. They're like, no, we're the, like, how can we be more explicit that we want the full expulsion of Palestinians? How can we be more explicit that we want the greater Israel? How can we be more explicit that actually apartheid is our preferred solution? And, and so it's just so, so strange that that myth and that nostalgia is still having such a hold. And for Palestinians, especially, this is just a, this is just obscene. Like even now, as we're witnessing, you know, uh, full, explicit, like genocidal remarks by the Israeli politicians and people are busy telling Palestinians, no, this isn't ethnic cleansing. No, this isn't genocide. And you can debate you know, these things in sort of academic or legal terms. That's fine. But if the past 10 years have not shifted Western understanding of what Israel, not only what it desires, but what it is actually inflicting on the ground, then there is no logic whatsoever to how people are understanding Israeli state and society. And the cost of that is coming to Palestinians. So whether it is that nostalgia or just that myth that's still not being broken, people need to understand that Palestinians have been warning about this for ages. We've been constantly proven right 
about what the Israeli state and Jewish Israeli society is becoming and what it's doing. And so people need to begin taking cues from the Palestinians as the people who are being occupied, as the people who are being colonized, who know their colonizers very, very well. And so that needs to be understood as the real diagnosis of what's going on. Not this myth that a democracy can exist with the complete subjugation of a group that is not part of your ethno-national, you know, quote-unquote, majority. And this really needs to be cracked down. You've already touched on the situation of Palestinian citizens of Israel. But I wonder if you could say a little bit about the history. In your LRB piece, you write that there is an extensive legal infrastructure that inherently makes Palestinian citizens unequal to Jewish citizens. So could you talk a bit about that, about the historical treatment of Palestinians inside Israel and and how their rights differ from Jewish Israelis? Definitely. It's a very interesting community because it demonstrates so much of the problem of the Israeli state in many respects. So um, just for everyone to know, like, so in the 1948 war in the Nekbe, you know, most Palestinians either fled or were expelled during that war. But you still had about 150,000 Palestinians on the Israeli side of the border after the armistice lines were created. And the state, for various reasons, decided to give those Palestinians citizenship. So we have had uh, that citizenship since 1948, 1950. In theory, this should be giving us equal rights. And Israel has tried to pretend that this has been the case. And we also have the right to vote, you know, s- since day one. But it has never been it has never been so. So for the first 20 years of the state, for up until 1966, all Palestinian citizens inside the, the state were placed under military rule. So the military systems that we're familiar with, especially in the West Bank and that also operated in Gaza, of you know curfews and army personnel and repression of protests you know, in that severe militarized way, existed in all Arab towns and communities inside the country. Like this is a military regime that was operating against its own citizens and ghettoizing communities. And it was a stage of like a lot of uh, mass land confiscations, not just of Palestinian refugees, but of Palestinian citizens in, inside the state. My own family, my own my own community lost huge chunks of lands that were then used for Jewish settlement in kibbutzes, etc. This 20 years of military rule is really forgotten, unfortunately, because that was where Israel developed and experimented with the mechanisms of military control. And in 1967, when Israel conquered the occupied territories of the West Bank and Gaza, as well as Golan and Sinai, it had 20 years of experience to then project that onto the 1967 territories. And they're not separate. It didn't just begin in 67. And so it became a continuation, an expansion of something that had been existing on citizens themselves. And so since 1967, Palestinian citizens have had progressively uh, improved rights, especially because of their own basically kind of pushbacks and resistance to the Israeli state through different means. But that legal infrastructure of inequality has always been there. So even though we're not being managed by military laws, per se, there's still many Israeli civil laws in the books that relate to land, that relate to uh, issues of like marriage and citizenship, relate to even things like certain aspects of freedom of expression, what have you, in addition to a whole host of policies and just the general attitudes and rhetoric of the Israeli Jewish society that inherently makes second-class citizens. And this is not just kind of historical gaps in the past that haven't been rectified. In the past 10, 15 years under the Netanyahu governments, the consecutive ones, you've still had a flood of new racist discriminatory laws attempting to enshrine 
even policies into legislation. And the most infamous of this is the Jewish nation state law in 2018, which made it like a constitutional anchor. But that is not when discrimination itself took place. You know, even a few years before you had things like the admissions committees law, which basically allowed housing segregation. You had the citizenship and uh, what we call like a family unification law, which was even enshrined by the Bennett-Lapid government uh, even more strongly than its, uh, its, its previous incarnations as a temporary order to basically ban Palestinian citizens uh, and citizens of Israel from extending their their status to uh, Palestinian spouses, even though, you know, so we're talking about thousands of families who are basically barred from being together inside of Israel explicitly by the, spon- by the sponsors of this law because of demographic purposes. That they said, like, we're not to, we don't have to pretend that this is for security reasons. We're just trying to block non-Jews from coming in. So it really manifests all the way down. So, you know, th- there's much more to say about this, but this is the macro structure in which they exist and which even shows that even though we have the right to vote and can and can be represented in the parliament, you know, even in the Knesset, there are laws and structures in place that target any kind of expression of Palestinian identity, that even if you demand a state for all its citizens, that that is actually deemed as a terrorist call that calls for the destruction of the Jewish state. And this is a slogan which, you know, should be taken as basic in any other part of the world, but somehow in Israel, that is deemed as an existential threat. And with all this, Palestinian citizens are still using their status and whatever rights they do have, which are much better than those in the occupied territories, to try to fight back and to try to change the system from within. And especially since the 1990s with the Oslo Accords, to really put forward that platform of full equality and an end to the occupation and to making the country really a, one of equal equal rights for all. And so it's a very progressive, uh, I mean, especially in the Israeli spectrum, it's a very progressive platform that they're trying to put forward. But Jewish-Israeli society cannot fathom it. They need their privilege, and they, or more bluntly, they need their supremacy to keep Israel's identity as a Jewish state. So, you know, Palestinian citizens are still very active to this day on all fronts, but I think we are so illustrative of the limits of what Israel thinks of itself as a democracy, and that the international community especially needs to look to this community to understand why Israel is more than just an ethnonational state, but how apartheid can still manifest even in more subtle ways than in the occupied territories. And so even if you do end the occupation, the question then becomes, do you still legitimize an ethno-nationalist project which still sees your race and your ethnicity as a determinant of your rights? For Palestinian citizens, that is unacceptable. Is it your view that a just resolution to the conflict would actually require a real sort of sea change within Jewish-Israeli opinion and if so, how on earth does that occur? Because at the moment, it seems, you know, as you describe, Israel is just on this sort of trajectory of moving further and further right with no apparent end to it. The first thing needs to be done is a recalibration of power. Before you can even change minds and opinions, you need to rectify this massive asymmetry that, is, that has existed you know, throughout the Israeli-Palestinian, you know, quote-unquote, conflict. And, you know, this asymmetry is manifested, like, the, the idea that this is kind of a conflict between two sides has just never been the case. And it's not just between Israel and the occupied territories, but also, like I was mentioning, like Jewish citizens and Palestinian citizens. No society that holds supremacy, no society that holds the levers of colonial power or, or state power ever gives it up willingly. It always has to be forced into it. Now, this doesn't entail you know having to do like armed violence or to do it, but... The Palestinian struggle has been about trying to 
weaken Israeli's power in order to create a more even playing field to create a different kind of arrangement in you know in Israel Palestine. But unfortunately, much of the world has only reinforced that power asymmetry through money, through arms, through political backing of all kinds. And we're even seeing it now in Gaza, where everyone is pretending that one of the most powerful states in the world, and one of the most powerful states in the region, and one of the most powerful armies in the region is somehow the victim in this thing. And it's not to say that the southern communities are not victims in themselves, but the uh, there's this kind of weird image that somehow Israel is subject to the terror of a tiny besieged Gaza Strip, and with no kind of recognition of how twisted that is. And they're comparing Israel with Ukraine as if Gaza is Russia. Like this is, it's so, it's so bizarre. And so this is why you have, not just in terms of like, why uh, political parties are going to the UN, why even Hamas is trying to wage asymmetrical guerrilla armed struggle, you know, whether you approve it or not. This is why Palestinians are advocating for boycott, divestment and sanctions, just trying to demand of the international community not to be complicit in this massive power asymmetry. So that needs to be done first. And the, the impunity that Israeli society feels, not just on the political level, but really in the public, to get away with everything is the first and foremost thing that needs to be broken down. It needs to be humbled. It needs to realize that it cannot continue on this. Only once that has been created in some level to weaken the power of the Israeli state and elevate Palestinian power in some form or another, and I'm speaking about power in the in the broad term, you know, across spectrums, only then can you begin to really enforce a change of ideas and a change of opinions and the change that Jewish Israelis need to understand that this can no longer continue. And even in the same way that what happened on October 7th has shattered that somehow, but the international community needs to step in to actually tell them that the Israeli solution, that what is needed is more power and more tyranny, is not the way to go. And Palestinians are precisely trying to, trying to guide uh, the Western world, especially to understand that, that this is the moment where, you know, there is a vulnerability that has been exposed on the part of Israel. And that vulnerability needs to be shown to Jewish Israeli society that, that what is needed is not basically a genocidal campaign in Gaza to ensure your security. Your only real safety is by creating a better situation for Palestinians. Like oppression does not quell Palestinian desire for their freedom or for their liberation. And this is something that Israeli state and society has never grasped. And it's something that Western policymakers and, and circles are pretending somehow that we will just accept our ethnic cleansing, that we will accept our subjugation, that Palestinian citizens will accept their second class status. And that's the long game that needs to be played and that will take generations. But it begins with understanding power and having to be a little realistic with what needs to be done in order to ensure that a different kind of space can emerge for different ideas that doesn't put supremacy at the center of our solutions. In 2021, we saw a major upsurge of Palestinian resistance, including within Israel, as well as the West Bank. Do you think at the moment there is any prospects for an upsurge of, of protest and, and civil disobedience from Palestinian citizens of Israel? Or do you think that people are more likely to you know, try and hunker down to the extent possible because of the very reasonable expectation that they will be met by severe repression and, and even lethal force from the Israeli security forces? There's a lot of expectation that this would happen this time around. But I mean, the first thing is that the fear has been so paralyzing. I mean, for Palestinian citizens, not just in terms of the fear of what was happening in Gaza, like to a scale that's unprecedented, but the Israeli authorities and Israeli society really learned from May 2021 and it learned for the worse. 
it came very prepared. And from the get-go, the mechanisms of persecution and repression and punishment activated in full force. Now, May 2021, you know, it has these kind of, has these two dimensions whereby on one hand, for all Palestinians, you know, from the river to the sea and even abroad, they regarded it as unity intifada or a dignity intifada, where there was this uh, incredible power that was felt and this resurgence of energy and, um, and sense that everyone was facing the same struggle, as they always have and as they will continue to do. But the other side of that was this complete horror of the Israeli, uh, Israeli state apparatus inflicting massive violence, including police inside Israel. You also had like right-wing Jewish mobs going to Arab neighborhoods and, uh, and Arab citizens in the workplaces, etc., often backed and accompanied by the police going against Palestinian citizens. And you had certainly like some Arab gangs in some places, like in, in quote unquote mixed cities, where there was, you know, sometimes these clashes between these two groups, but even that had a massive power asymmetry. And the fear of that really decentralized violence, you know, it, it, it's it, it's really hard to overstate. It, it, it's gripped and really overshadowed a lot of the Palestinian citizens' experience of how much the Israeli state and society can really turn in on Palestinian citizens in ferocious ways. And we've been seeing that just in the past few weeks. And this is why a lot of people, both by fear and by that repression, you're not seeing the same kind of protests as before. The fear is so stifling. The genocidal remarks that you're hearing from politicians and from the media, and if you ask a lot of Palestinian citizens, just when they're going to work or when they're going to the grocery store, the the things that they're hearing, not just the racist rhetoric, but now Jewish Israelis from north to south are carrying firearms and they're being encouraged by politicians like National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir, who's basically handing out weapons, not only to the settlements in the West Bank, but also to uh, those inside the Israeli state. You know, my own family and my own uh, and friends, you know, are walking around and all they're seeing are Jewish Israelis carrying guns. And it's very clear who, the, you know, who those guns are for. And so even people having fearing to even speak Arabic on the streets. And so we've always sensed this and had this in previous rounds, and it's been escalating for quite a number of years, but it's just lurched to such a level, which is really hard to... To, to, to fully describe. And so for the time being, we haven't seen that same kind of uprising or the same kind of demonstrations. The, the Israeli state has really done its work in stifling that to such an extent. And Palestinian citizens are trying to decide, you know, what's a smart thing to do? Because they want to come out into the streets and they want to do what they can to help Gaza. Uh, I mean, especially Gaza, but also in the West Bank, which is also facing this. And so, but what we are really seeing is this massive totalitarian shift on the part of, like, the Jewish-Israeli society, for the most part, has joined on to the agenda of seeing all Palestinians, not just Gaza, as a problem that can't be solved except through tyranny and except, especially in this case of Gaza, except through getting rid of two million Palestinians if they can. And that's a very terrifying place. Like, I'm using blood words, but the totalitarianism and the fascism that's now surging through these past few weeks is to a scale you ju- we just can't imagine. And again, this is where people abroad need to grasp this really state and society just, it has the power to implement those, those terrifying ambitions. And Palestinian citizens are really at a point where they're so vulnerable. For all the fight that they're putting up, they're extremely vulnerable. And they really are, this is why they're sensing, you know, the idea of genocide, not just, you know, not in terms of like genocide in terms of levels of killing, but genocide in the old words, in the old terms of thinking about the essence of a community or really trying to destroy the identity and the things that make up a society and that make up the identity of Palestinians. Going back to your piece in the London Review of Books, in that piece you wrote that on the streets and online, 
many Palestinian activists have dropped the language of diplomacy and stopped appealing to international laws that have failed them. They are no longer willing to accept the amnesiac narrative that says their grievances date to 1967 rather than 1948, and that their future lies in a quasi-state on only a fifth of their former homeland. Many are tired of apologising for violent resistance, as if violence were not inherent to all anti-colonial struggles. They are tired of Western governments and media that treat their resistance as more egregious than Israeli occupation, while non-violent acts are deemed anti-Semitic or decried as terrorism. How do you think that that renewed militancy that you described there might play out in Palestinian politics and society and, and how it could inflect strategies of resistance? It's, uh, it's been hard to grapple with, uh, to be honest, um, because of the feeling of total existential fear, like at a scale, again, which we haven't felt in a very, very long time, like the, the feeling that we really are on the cusp of another phase of the Nekbe, of the catastrophe, I think has really pushed a lot of Palestinians to the edge that any attempts to even try to use alternative tactics to try to think of more more positive you know, sort of political avenues vis-a-vis Israelis or the Israeli state or even the international community or the, especially the Western world, they feel that all that was in vain. And they feel that more than any other time, they're, they're really on their own. I mean, you know, they're seeing the massive solidarity, they're seeing the protests, but in the end, power is still held by a lot of these governments and companies and other circles, which are enabling this to such full force. And so for Palestinians, it's, you know, kind of tragically, but naturally they're going towards this more adamant sense where you, like maybe maybe there is no real peaceful future with Israelis. Maybe they can't stand this. They are, you know, if they're, they're, they have the power to, to get rid of us, you know, in a way that they couldn't fully succeed in 1948, but now they have all the forces behind them to do so. And I think, and you're seeing that in this rhetoric whereby we just can't, we can, there's this feeling that Palestinians can only rely on themselves and that they have to give it all in, that all the ideas that everyone told us of how to wage our struggle have just led us to to ruin and to this, to this very dangerous place, all while the Israelis have been legitimized to say the worst things and do the worst things. And again, this is not to say that, you know, everyone's just leapt there, but I think, um, and this comes to the questions of like, you know, where do you, when do you use sort of, I mean, for lack of better categories, but between nonviolent struggle like BDS, uh, which people are still partaking in, but also the question of armed struggle that, you know, like I was saying, like the, the idea that the massacres that were inflicted in Southern Israeli communities, you know, which, which were atrocious, but that people and especially Western powers are taking that somehow more egregious than the jet fighters or the tanks or the drones that are casually dropping bombs across the Gaza Strip, dismembering families, causing this, you know, absolute wanton destruction of 3,000 kids among over eight to 9,000 Palestinians now who are being killed there, like that somehow one is worse than the other. And it's not that one should be equivocating in between these, but like it just represents, again, the power asymmetry. And so I think Palestinians are having a real deep contemplation of, well, what do you do with this? You know, and that and that for a lot of Palestinians who've tried to appeal to, especially the Western world, which has these levers of power with Israel, that they're tired of even appealing to them. And that, yeah, they don't want to apologize anymore for having to say that, you know what, you can provide us with the rights and liberation that we demanded of you. So anyone who can do anything to inflict some cost on the occupier and on the colonizer, you know, 
who are we to say anything else, you know, and especially in the population in Gaza, which has seen no hope for 15 plus years, there's almost like this resignation to the idea that we have to go all in. And this is a very tragic place to be, like when uh, when our politics has been given no hope, when armed struggle and diplomatic struggle and, and nonviolent struggle are all met with the same demonizations of terrorism, are all met with criminalization, even in from France to the UK to the US, like the fact that you can't even boycott without being called anti-Semitic is, is for Palestinians obscene. So this is a very dangerous place to be because it's shown us that everything we've tried doesn't work. And actually it's not about how we wage our struggle or what we say and what we're, or whether we're impolite or diplomatic. It's, it's the fact that we're Palestinian and the fact that Western powers have aligned themselves with the Israeli side, that for them in the end, the Israeli state matters more than Palestinians, that Israeli lives matter more than Palestinians. And even though we're in, the, we're in the eye of the storm and there's still a lot of questions about organization, but and in the end, our first and foremost priority is survival, you know, especially in Gaza. The signs of what this has done to Palestinians is very dangerous, you know. And if in the past people were talking about the idea of like the South Africa model and trying to, I mean, which itself is a bit of a whitewashed model, which is actually much more complex and much more violent than people assume. But, you know, if in the past people were talking about how do you wage an anti-apartheid struggle, trying to emulate the important parts of South Africa, more and more people are at least even more overtly saying, you know what, maybe Algeria is where this is going. You know, whether or not it's desired, it's like, is this where, is this where we're at? Is it really a zero-sum game? So, you know, and it fluctuates. And decolonization and concepts of anti-colonial struggles have a much broader spectrum than just South Africa and Algeria. But at this particular moment, I think the existentialism with which everyone is feeling, perceived or real, has brought us to a very dangerous place. And we really need to rectify that. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. £5 patrons get access to PTO Extra, bonus episodes of the show, usually two per month, including listeners' questions episodes, where you can hear recent guests respond to comments and questions sent in by PTO supporters. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. The show's music and graphic design is produced by Planet B Productions. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.